Hello and welcome, friends, to this week's edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio WFMP LP Louisville, broadcasting from here in the historic Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville at 4th and Broadway on 106.5 FM. Or maybe you're listening to us on our live stream at forwardradio.org. While you're there, why don't you click on Participate and become part of this community radio station that relies entirely on volunteer power and your donations. So if you have $20 to chip in, you could help sponsor this entire day's broadcast. And if you've got an hour or two to chip in this week, you could help us out either on air behind the microphones. We'd love to get your voices on the radio. If you've got an idea for a new program, whether it's a weekly one or a one-time access hour, we'd love to hear from you at forwardradio.org. So yeah, lots of ways to help out and uh, make this community radio a reality every single day day 24-7. Well, what we do here on Sustainability Now each week is take a deep dive into different topics in sustainability. And today it's all about smart growth. Uh, You know, uh, our city certainly has been growing uh, over the last few decades uh, at at quite a pace. And I would certainly argue that a lot of it has not been smart. Uh, It has not been equitable. And we're going to talk about equity in smart growth. And what does equity in smart growth really mean? That was the title of a great conversation that happened just this past Friday, October 23rd, between Calvin Gladney and Andre Perry. It was hosted by the Smart Growth Network. Uh, And uh, Calvin Gladney is president and CEO of Smart Growth America, and he's a national thought leader on equitable and sustainable community revitalization. And Andre Perry is from the Brookings Institution, an author of Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. Gladney and Perry Examine the current state of built environments and the policies that have historically affected the lives of people of color and look to the future to explore the potential for positive change. You can learn more at smartgrowth.org. But right now, just kick back and enjoy this fantastic conversation between two African-American thought leaders on smart growth here on Sustainability Now. Andre, how you doing, man? Oh, it's always a struggle out here for a black man in America, but I'm surviving. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to take the bait on that one, man. I'm not going to take the bait. You know, I'll I'll start by just saying when I first read or heard the term smart growth, it actually was during grad school in the late 90s, and I was doing a research project that examined the transportation costs of busing in certain states. Now, at the time, it was increasing rapidly. And then, obviously, I did some research, and it was connected to urban. Um, The growth of cities was literally growing in size and, and distance. And that was causing many school districts to have to bus students for longer distances, requiring more gas, more time. And that's when I learned that there were um, loosely affiliated activists of different types who were trying to make a more sustainable community. So Brawl was sort of the principal center of this issue around smart group. It's It's the evil villain in our origin story. <laughs> exactly. And then I learned that, you know, you had sort of environmentalists working on this issue. You had people who were... Inter- interested in transit-oriented development in this, in, on this issue. You had those who were just interested in economic development, and the, they were fairly 
fairly disparate organizations all working on how to curb fraud, no pun intended there. The, and then you also had, around the same time, Al Gore, the American Planning Association, HUD, and a lot of other actors, various foundations started to get in, involved. And this term, smart growth, really started to emerge. Now, it primarily stayed in elite circles for the most part, policy circles. I first learned about this issue really with looking at superintendents and they're scratching their head asking, why are my transportation costs going up every year? And in some cases, they had fewer students and the, and the costs kept going up. And obviously, it was um, they were using more transportation services. And what were the demographics of those kids on those buses? Well, no, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because they're primarily white kids that we're talking about. Well, we were often talking about suburban folks being transported in the studies I examined. And, you know, I have to say that many of these dynamics were caused by um, some of the urban development plans of the past. We know that um, the highway systems that barrel through black communities eventually help facilitate the growth of suburbs. Right. And, and we kind of, we'll get into that a little bit later around racial equity, but, and, and what smart growth should also include. But when I did these studies, it was really um, the consequence of building outward. And oftentimes that came at the detriment of black people. So when we're talking about smart growth, we should not forget much of the source of the problems that we see were actually stem from the devaluation of black communities and the inability for folks to want to live close to black people. And so we should never forget that story because oftentimes we talk about traffic, we talk about environmentalism, we talk about economic development, and we forget about black people. And that you know, part it, it's interesting you said that in... And one of the things that I think, frankly, will be an evolution, both in terms of the smart growth movement and how we talk about things, is to really, in a sense, take a step back and be clear about the history and be more affirmative in saying that mistakes were made, there were blind spots, there were missed opportunities. And frankly, a lot of the tools of smart growth have unfortunately been used as tools of racism, as tools of white supremacy, as tools of, as you said, anti-blackness. And you can take this all the way back to the Homestead Act, where folks were given land, and it was really a sort of a push west and a push, it was in some ways a sprawl on a nationwide basis. Right. But, you know, black and brown people, but particularly and specifically black people, but other ethnic groups as well were explicitly excluded from getting those plots of land. Um, that was sort of race-based land use at the very beginning. You can look at whether you read Richard Rothstein's Color of Law, or you just know about redlining and the original intent of most of our zoning. Most of the intent of our original zoning was to create land uses where certain people could live or not live. So you had racial covenants. I, I used to live in Oakland, California, and bought a house and had to sign a deed that had the racial covenant still in it. And then they had a sort of addendum on top of it saying this no longer applies. But 
whether it's land use, like you said, whether it's transportation infrastructure and our building out of mo different options of mobility, whether you, you think about the 50s and the transportation system, um, or even some of our economic development choices. We could go back to the GI Bill and say, we gave folks a leverage point to get education as a way of economic development and explicitly excluded lots of folks, and in particular, by design, black folks. So one of the things I like to talk about is, you know, we have a lot of great things that the Smart Growth Movement has done, but there's been a lot of ways that the core tools of our movement have been used by design for negative reasons. And so one of the things we have to do now is say, not only do we know what the right tools are, there might be some additional tools we need to bring to the table. And some of the tools that we usually use may need to be thought about as tools of undoing injustice and not just tools for him. Absolutely. And let's be clear, uh, I talk a lot about placemaking and planning and all of these issues. And unfortunately, many of the solutions that, as you mentioned, that have been brought to bear from this movement has also injured black people. I always like, with, with placemaking, I've always felt uncomfortable with that term. And like I state in my book, I said, you know, you don't make place, they already exist, you know, except for we make them for white people often. And we displace black people in the process. And so until we center black people in smart growth, it's not really smart. It's because part of this movement is around sustainability. And if we're not sustaining the population that have been injured by our past policies, then what the heck are we doing? And so we should not kid ourselves that people, and you know this more than anybody, when we talk planning, we often talk about brick and mortar. We also talk about street, pipes, all these different things. We don't talk, necessarily talk about people. There's an assumption that it will benefit people, but we don't explicate people and people who have been injured by past policy. So I've been arguing, and I think you are a leader in this area, that we have got to recognize black lives, brown lives, in our strategies to improve our communities, because if, if black people are not present, then the whole sustainability argument just falls apart. Right. And you know, I mean, one of the sort of push-pulls here is that a lot of the things we've done as a movement, transit-oriented development, making sure that we create more mixed-use places, mixed-income places, um, that we think about place and think about mobility at the same time as we think about the buildings. A lot of those have had some upsides and benefit to black and brown people. The challenge is that for all the benefits that have accrued, in some cases that all boats rise theory doesn't really work because in some cases people are not on a boat. So <laughs> they right. couldn't arise when all the boats are rising. And in some cases, again, unfortunately, some of those same tools that are great tools that are the right tools were used in an exclusionary way, or frankly, in these days, it's less about exclusion on purpose, but by default, lack of inclusion. And right. so one of the things that I think we're going to do and we continue to do, and a lot of the folks who believe in the principles and tactics will do along with us, is to say, how do we make sure we're being inclusive? So, for example, and that it, it relates to race and it relates to other 
you know, challenges as well. So if you're a person um, of differing abilities, if you have a disability, you might say, well, that's great. You're talking about complete streets and you're creating these bike lanes, but are those bike lanes wide enough for folks that have different types of bikes that might not be the normal type of bike because of disabilities? So you, you can think about all of the categories, but particularly when it comes to race, we have to say to ourselves, are all the strategies that we use that are the right ones, and this comes up during COVID and the pandemic now, let's make sure that the use of that strategy is inclusive, the use of that strategy doesn't exacerbate an existing disparity, or double down on injustices of the past, and frankly, too, takes into account some different perspectives, which is why we're trying to broaden the table with folks who work on smart growth. Real example, I'll give you a real story that I like to tell in D.C. So one day I'm in an Uber, and there's a black guy driving. And, you know, we're driving, I'm sitting in the back, I'm on my phone, and suddenly a guy rolls by in a bike lane, and it's a, a black guy who appears to be in his 30s, early 40s, and he's on a bike. And the black guy looks at me through the rear view mirror and says, black guy on a bike at night? Oh, gotta be up to no good. <laughs> and it's just, it's reminiscent of there are things that we know are the right answer. And sometimes we go to a community meeting, we're doing engagement, and we're like, why are these people fighting against this thing that is totally the right answer? And sometimes it's because maybe we have a blind spot to their lived experience. Right. And so you might have a lived experience which says, as a black man, I'm not getting on a bike at night, so you can do all the complete streets you want, but I'm actually never going to use it because it's not going to be a safe space for me for a variety of non-related to smart growth reasons. Or, hey, where are you bringing those bike lanes first? Is the bike lane the canary in the coal mine? Because every time I've seen mobility infrastructure come to my community, it is usually followed by displacement and other challenges. That doesn't mean that the smart growth tool is a tool for displacement, but sometimes it's a matter of putting yourself in the shoes of a different lived experience, and frankly, having more people with that lived experience at the table. So when we start thinking about our principles, our tactics, and the things that we can do and should do, we say, let's just make sure that if someone had a different lived experience, this would also be beneficial to them, or do we have to do some more explaining on why this should make sense? But I, you know, I'll challenge you a little bit that I do think that many of the tools that we use, if done in the improper order, they can displace and sometimes intentionally. I mean, we we know that there is nothing inherently wrong with bike lanes. Nothing. I mean, I, we should have bike lanes. We should encourage people riding bikes. We should encourage people walking. That is the right thing to do. However, if you're not meeting the needs of community first, if you're not doing the questionnaires, if you're not serving them, then who are you actually creating the bike lanes for? And we have got to ask ourselves these questions, really, because who are we making a place for? Right. And if we are honest, we are often saying, we know what's best for you, community. You need... And again, there's nothing wrong with bike lanes. I, I appreciate a good bike lane, especially in the cities I've lived in. They are phenomenal. But when you have people who've been asking for other things for decades and not getting it, when they see 
a bike plane. They're like, what just happened? And um, so for me, this is about figuring out how to make place for everyone. And I'll give you another example, another tool that was used inappropriately, in my opinion. I lived in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, after Hurricane Mm -hmm. Katrina. And again, no one would argue that we did not need mixed income housing. And I am a big proponent of integration. If you follow me, you know I'm a big proponent of integration, both socioeconomic integration and racial integration. I think both are vital to social growth. But after Hurricane Katrina, the city council voted to literally lock out all the housing projects in the city, even the ones that did not flood. And they eventually knew that they were going to build mixed income housing, but they didn't put up the same number of units that the housing project afforded. And so you essentially displaced thousands of black, poor, low-income residents, the folks who actually needed the housing more so right. than anyone else, you displaced them. Now, again... Well, I wouldn't call that smart. Those are, that was not a that, smart growth That project. was not a smart... That wasn't smart, but that's why I wanted to make a distinction between like a tool. A lot of the tools that we use, and I'm glad you said that, those are not smart. That's not the smart application of the tool. So again, we've always got to be mindful that when we are implementing these smart growth strategies, that we are truly connected to members of the community that need the growth. Right. Right. So well, I, I, I will say that this is another issue and, and um, for me. Part of this is planners not being from or of the community. And it's also a, a reflection of the state of racial diversity in planning in itself. I mean, there is no question, you know, I think it's 2% of, of architects are black. I'm forgetting that this is a percentage of planners in general. But you don't forget the community when you have people represented in the community. Like, and so for me, it's also, and when we're talking about inclusion, we have to look at the professional, that there needs to be an effort to include more diversity in the profession. Right. And, you know, it almost comes down to, well, who's part of the movement? Um, and I think of this in a number of ways. One is we definitely need to get more folks with a variety of lived experiences at the table as one of the people talking about and trying to implement smart group tools. So that's who works at SGA, who's on the board, who's at other smart growth organizations, all of those things. It also is who are we collaborating with? Because there are cases where the lived experience and subject matter expertise that relates to better racially equitable outcomes, more economic inclusion in the outcomes from various tactics really requires an expertise that, as smart growthers, if you want to use that term, we shouldn't have. And so part of what we often try to talk about more is to say that smart growth is this kind of interconnected, interdisciplinary mindset. But it it also understands that it doesn't solve all the problems. And even though it is a set of tools, it's still just one tool in the larger ecosystem of tools for community revitalization, resilience, and sustainability. And so we have to be more clear that when we're in an environment and we're trying to use our various tools and ideas to do something to the benefit of the community, 
that it's not oversold of all the things we can solve. So that it isn't like, well, you know, for example, like a TOD project, that is designed to solve some problem, but it can't solve all the problems. And so, you know, we're trying to get away from some of the project level stuff and say, what we're focused on and what smart growth is focused on and what SGA is focused on is systems level change. Yeah. How do we change the proverbial and actual infrastructure to how we get to outcomes? If you're just tuning into us here on Forward Radio's Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, quick reminder that we are listening to a great conversation that happened back on Friday, October 23rd, hosted by the Smart Growth Network with a conversation between Calvin Gladney, President and CEO of Smart Growth America, and Andre Perry of the Brooking Institution, author of Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. And now we'll take you back to their conversation from last Friday. So, for example, we're making a push on changing land use and zoning so that land use and zoning is a positive tool for racial equity and is a positive tool for economic inclusion. That has never been the case historically. It's been the opposite. And right now, in some places, it's neutral, and in almost all cases, it's very hard to see how the zoning is promoting equity, is supporting and pushing for economic inclusion. So we're saying, hey, we know that smart growth doesn't solve all problems, but the things we're fighting on are at a systems level so that we can change that. We can change how land use and zoning supports the ability to build more housing, supports the ability to have small businesses actually do some of the things that we're doing as an innovation during COVID, like have seats on the sidewalk, like a lot of that was cold and zoning that wouldn't allow for that. That's and right. so if we can make systems level changes that whether it's on economic development, whether it's on transportation, whether it's on land use, that's where our fight is, both as an organization and as a movement. And if we can center racial equity in those system levels changes that we're fighting for through advocacy, through our technical assistance, through our thought leadership, through conversations like this, through reports that we're putting out, we can put all those together and affect the system, then that's when we're successful. You know, I actually am excited about smart growth in this regard, that if you want to call it a movement of sort of loosely coupled affiliations, so you have like transit people, you have housing people, you have infrastructure people, you have various groups. You know, what this racial uprising is doing, you're starting to see black, brown, Asian folks forming new groups and being included in these existing movements. And I I think what will happen is when you see more black and brown people in the smart growth movement, there will be a greater emphasis on structural equality, because that's been the Achilles heel, so to speak, of the smart growth movement that they've been working within the confines of structural inequality. And sometimes the the tools have reified what already existed. And so for me, it's like there's an opportunity to really advance the movement by being more inclusive and connected. So true. And it's interesting. Uh, If you go back, if you could go back in time, sort of back to our website in 2008, and someone had sent the screenshot around a couple of months ago. In 2008, 
our website said that one of the key components of smart growth was social equity. Yeah. <laughs> that was 12 years ago. And there was a social equity conversation in our kind of origin story, along with the environmentalism and other things. So part of it is just reclaiming, reaffirming, and being more affirmative about a focus and centering of equity, and I would say more specifically racial equity, because it's a dominant challenge that has domino effects on almost everything. The second thing I'll say is, you know, if you go to transportation choices, an organization in Seattle, Washington, if you go to the Committee on Planning Excellence in Baton Rouge, if you go to East Metro Strong, which is located in St. Paul, Minnesota, or you go to New Jersey Future, all of those are smart growth organizations. None of them have the term smart growth in their name. So what we have to do is think about ourselves as a movement to say, it's not, in some ways, it's, not, it's a smart growth movement, small s, small g, because it's a Venn diagram of disciplines, of a mindset, and a set of shared outcomes that we're all trying to get to, healthier people, more resilient places, and shared prosperity, this kind of economic inclusion, which is the language of the day. We all are trying to get to those outcomes, and we're all using different tools that fit within the larger rubric of smart growth to do that. And so what we're trying to do and what we want to do in the ecosystem is to say, this movement, it has a shared vocabulary, shared priorities, but we do need to either reclaim folks that used to be a part of the movement but have not recently, bring in more folks under the tent that have different subject matter expertise and lived experience, particularly when it comes to communities of color, black and brown people, and have an understanding of how even some of these technical tools might need to be tweaked or amended or changed to make sure that when you implement them, one of the core outcomes that you seek from the implementation is racial equity. So we have always been in the table building business. That's what SGA was founded essentially as a coalition to start. And so what we're doing now is to say this movement has a broad tent based on shared priorities, shared goals, not whether you call yourself a smart ruler or you have smart growth in your name, but if you believe that racial equity has to be a goal of everything you do, you believe that economic inclusion, if done correctly, is one of the solution sets to many of the health, wealth, and mental disparities that you see across many communities. If you believe those things, let's all join together in this movement. The table is big enough for all of us, and we can all move. No, I'm going to give a little plug for myself right now since we're talking hey. potential possibilities and solutions. Many of you know who follow my work or have read Know Your Price know that I do a lot of work on housing prices. Just to be brief, that I looked at home prices in black neighborhoods and compared them to home prices in white neighborhoods and controlled for education, crime, walkability, all those fancy zillow metrics. We found that homes in black neighborhoods are underpriced by 23%, about 48000 per home, which accumulatively there's a national loss of equity amounting to $156 billion, which is a, a large amount, would have financed more than 4 million black-owned businesses based on the average amount blacks used to start their firms, would have financed more than 8 million four-year degrees. It's a big number. But it's a problem you can't easily solve. You can't easily wave a magic wand at home prices and, and raise them because you will lock people. negative effects if you do it. Yeah, that's right. 
So what I'm doing right now with Ashoka, we're going to have a million-dollar challenge competition. We're asking for people, and I know a lot of planners are out there. We're looking for market-based and policy-based solutions that will solve for housing devaluation. And you mentioned one of the key terms here, zoning. You know, we need interesting zoning policy moving forward to solve this issue. Zoning that will allow for more density, more affordability, different types of ownership models. Um, yep. And that's going to uh, take a, you know, it's going to require smart tools. So I just wanted to put that out there, that there are, there's going to be opportunities for us to work together to solve some of these major problems that are robbing black, brown, and underserved communities from a chance at the American dream. And for me, that's what smart growth is about, giving people opportunity, not just providing bike lane, but more broadly, providing people opportunity. So I just want to put that out there. We're going to announce that probably later this month. So follow me on Twitter and you'll, you'll definitely hear the announcement. No shame in the game. No, no shame, shame in the game. I love it. But, you know, it's critically important because you could say that there is a negative racial dividend that accrues to certain folks, and that plays out in land use, transportation, and economic development policy writ large in the country. That's right. So that's one of the reasons why we, we've evolved to not only be advocates, as one might say it, in the traditional sense, but also doing a lot of technical research and analysis. You know, we partner with Brookings and others, GW, lots of different groups, because we know that in some cases, it's not the advocacy for the right answer. It's like, do you actually have the data, the methodology, and the basis for what you're fighting for? And sometimes when people sort of don't see why and how we got here, sometimes you need the data, you know, like, I can imagine that you have talked to a black person about your book, and they're like, you know, I don't even need to read your book. Everything you just said, I, I don't even understand your methodology and all that stuff you talked about and Zillow and blah, blah, blah. We've known that for 20 years. That's that exactly. our house somehow ends up being valued for less. When I sold it, it moved to a different, they already know that. But I think one thing that we've learned is that data and then real-life people bringing their examples to the table are the way to do it. And so we see the movement and coalitions we're trying to build also say, maybe we need to do a Hill visit where the congressperson can talk to somebody from New Orleans who can talk about how this actually happened to them. So when we're thinking about getting a congressperson, a mayor, a city council member, presidential administrator to change a systems level policy, we can bring to bear the data and the technical analysis as well as the lived experience and the real stories. And that storytelling requires a, a broader table because you need other people to tell the stories. Sometimes it's not going to be, particularly on issues of racial equity, sometimes it's not going to be the message. It's going to be the message. Yeah, it's going to be who's saying. Um, and there's going to be cases where SGA, we might have the right smart group tool, tactic, strategy, approach, methodology, and implementation plan, but we'd be better off partnering with and working with a different messenger who can make sure that the, the answers are heard and, frankly, too, have a better ear to understand where things need to be tweaked. 
So we know that we're part of a broader ecosystem, and we know that we're not always the right messenger, but we know that we're also a good part of the content of the message. And what we're looking for is more partnership on issues of racial equity in particular, because we know for a fact we're not always the right answer. We know for a fact that there will be moments when a history is attributed to us and some of the tools that we've used that make it harder for us to be heard. So we want to we want to be part of a movement that's broadening, that has more people at the table, that we can partner our expertise, whether it's we have expertise at the federal level, so let's go partner at the local level. So, you know, a friend of both of ours, we partnered with Nathaniel Smith and Partnership for Southern Equity. Shout out to those guys if they're on the phone. I think they, they probably are. Um, in Atlanta to work on the six poorest zip codes in Atlanta, which unfortunately all are predominantly African-American lived zip codes, to work on the intersection of climate change, health, and racial equity. And we did that because, one, we know that sometimes we're not the right messenger. Two, there's experiences that we don't have, subject matter expertise that we don't have. But as a movement, we need these federal, state, local partnerships so that there's no missing middle. There's no missing coalition at the state level. There's no missing coalition where you have local folks. I, I did a speech the other day where I was like, part of the problem is we're funding and we're working Local folks on the ground sometimes really need to be fighting upstream because if you allow, as an example, federal rules fund transportation options, and right now that federal funding formula is disproportionately disproportionately funds highways. The cost of a highway will get paid from 70 to 80 percent of the cost of a highway, but if you were proposing transit, it will only it will only pay for like 20 percent. And that's a relic of a, of a day past, that 80-20 split. So one of the things we're fighting for is to change that split and have parity. So it's 50-50. So if you're proposing public transit, mobility, infrastructure, and the like, which are the things that tend to have positive racial equity outcomes, you could be fighting on the ground at a locality and doing all the great things, but the rules came from the congressional legislation, and you can't fight. It's too late to fight that once it's passed. Right. So we want to have those partnerships to make sure we can work together. You know, and we, that's why we fight at the federal level. We've been fighting along. We call it the Rehab Act, and it's been included in a couple of places where we basically say we need to fund what we think is important, which means we need to allow for different ways to incentivize transit-oriented development, while at the same time bringing more housing to bear in that transit-oriented development, particularly more attainable and affordable housing. So legislation right now will sometimes push for that, but it won't pay for the infrastructure around it. So then it doesn't happen. You don't get the placemaking. You get these sort of one-off buildings with not a lot of affordable housing. And then everyone's like, I can't believe folks got displaced. I can't believe all these bad outcomes. And it wasn't racial equity. It's like because the federal legislation and the funding and the financing tools never allowed for it. So that's another example. Systems level change partnered with local groups. That's the movement we're building, we're a part of, and that's how we're going to get to racial equity. I'm going to emphasize this point because I think one of our first meetings together, we were talking about TOD and how you. it's imperative if you're going to have transit-oriented development, you, you, you almost have to have a housing policy or a housing plan affiliated with it because 
we've seen too many times that the promise of TOD um, fall by the wayside because people ultimately were displaced by it. So for me, it's this is how you make connection. Just to reemphasize the point, you make the connection by expanding the tent, by inviting more people in so that you recognize the needs, so that you could recognize the blind spots. And this is what I think ultimately we are both selling to all of you is that we want to expand the tent. We want racial equity to be one of those pillars of, of how we define smart growth because that's the Achilles heel. That's what's missing. And one of the challenges with this is you have to have metrics for racial equity if you right. actually intend to get the racially equitable wealth. And sometimes those metrics will differ than what is the typical metric on, way, on the way you think something is good or not good. A real example of that would be if you think about transit, and you say, well, one of the ways we currently analyze public transit is we think about how fast can people get to and from, and what is the level of service, and then frankly, is it cost-effective? So if you have a bus, so you know Detroit, if you live in an outskirts neighborhood in Detroit, and there's a number of cities like this because of sprawl, you can't have a, quote, cost-effective level of service for the 20 people that live in a neighborhood that are 10 miles away. And so you would say, no, well, we can't run that line. We can't do that bus service. We can't put that light rail in that streetcar because from a transportation analysis the typical ways you would analyze this, you say it's not cost-effective, we can't do it, people are going to be mad that we spent hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, and this bus goes by, or like the DC circulator, and there's only two people on it. So that's a bad answer. But if you make your metric access to job, access to services, the ability to get, if you're a public transit worker, if you're one of our service workers, you're one of our essential workers, which often are predominantly people of color. Getting back to racial equity, you might say, well, my metric isn't whether there's enough people to fill up the fare box to make the, the business model work. If racial equity is my metric and my main outcome, there are going to be cases where this is not going to be cost-effective because what we're trying to do is benefit those who have suffered from disinvestment who live that far away from where jobs are, not because of their design, but by the design of a system that had focused on race and racism. And so now we might need to say, we have a metric that's about access. It's not about cost-effectiveness alone. And it's those type of tweaks where you change the metric that you can get the racial equity. If we just do the typical ways we analyze things and the typical formulas, we're going to always say, you know, that'd be great to do, but that's not how we analyze these things. And that's, not, that's not why we're going to put retail there, because there's just not enough customers. We can't put that type of business on the ground floor of that building because it's not going to be able to afford the rent. So maybe we need to change some of those metrics. Well, you done said a word there, because let me tell you, too often we work within a false framework of scarcity. We assume that if we build something for someone, you're going to take away resources from another. 
and we have yet to really experience what growth really looks like when there's inclusion. Too often, like, we keep thinking, oh, we're going to slice up too much of the pie, but the pie mm -hmm. will grow if our metrics are centered around inclusion and opportunity, not around scarcity. And so for me, when I think of smart growth, at least how I was introduced to it, it was sort of to stop the sprawl because it was just becoming inefficient. It was becoming um, polluting the air. You were destroying land, you know, all these different things. And we had to come back to a more sustainable model of growth. And so for me, that sustainable model has to involve increased opportunity for those who aren't involved. That's what's going to expand our notion of smart growth. That's what's going to expand the economy. That's what's going to end some of the waste that we see when we don't include people. And so for me, it's like our metrics are really built to look at scarcity, which punishes people who are not already involved. Yep. And, you know, the other thing you can say there, too, is you can be a little more Machiavellian. You can say, you know, I don't really care about any of this. But you can say to yourself as a city official that economic inclusion is actually good fiscal policy for this. Because if you're a city that's 50% black or whatever percentage black and black homes are being devalued, well, that's reducing your property tax base. That's right. It's that fiscal policy. So you can be more Machiavellian and say, well, there's an existential threat to this planet called climate change and say, well, I don't really care about a lot of those things, but disproportionate use of public transit comes from black and brown folks. Mm -hmm. So if you better the level of service, there's folks that are, you know, as I used to say growing up, are driving a hoopty, driving a beater, depending on where you live, because they can't get on public transit. And that's disproportionately, in many cases, low wealth people, folks of lower income and means, and black and brown people. So it'd be better climate change policy to say, how do we make sure that our mobility, our transportation, our systems fight for access to jobs, services, public health, education, and the like, maybe because I don't really care about those other social policy things, but it's actually that fiscal policy. And as long as we have some percentage of the population of our city whose homes are devalued, so their property taxes are lower, their actual net wealth, the actual wealth of those households, African-American households and the like, are lower. So their you know, disposable income and the like is lower. So they're not, we're not getting the sales taxes that we could have in the city. As long as we build to sprawl where our retail is not in the core cities, where we don't have what I recall, and many are talking about 15-minute neighborhoods where you can walk and get to a small business maybe owned by a black and brown person, but maybe not. You can get to some of the services and resources you need within a 15-minute walk, bike, or roll, or some other version of mobility. If you do those things, they will have positive racial equitable outcomes, but if you don't care about that, you can just say, I'm doing it because it's great fiscal policy. Absolutely. And, and, and that's what we have to work on. We need to work on people. The head case for some, the money case for others. And then the heart case, there's still folks who actually have a soul, who, who actually want to do the right thing regardless. But you're right. We need strategies that will talk to people's pocketbook, their head, and their heart um, simultaneously. And then we'll start to see 
the goodness of being inclusive or having inclusion a part of smartness in smart group month. Oh, and this made me remember one thing on that, which gets to inclusion too, which is one of our key tactics is you gotta be able to describe to a policymaker, decision maker, or someone else why something that has gotten a city-fied brand to it like smart growth sometimes, yeah. where people call themselves, and I'll, I'll say here for the record, I am not an urbanist, because what we're trying to accomplish is not to make everything urban, or urbanized per se. What I'm trying to accomplish is what are the tactics and strategies that can get to healthier people, more prosperous places, and places that are more resilient against climate change. And I need to be able to have that conversation, not just in Washington, D.C., but I need to be able to go to Atmore, Alabama and have that same conversation. I need to be able to go to Sparta, Georgia. I need to go to Orinda in California. I need to be able to go to smaller, rural, small towns and have yeah. the same conversation and have them understand why transit and infrastructure and some of these things, broadband, are the ways not to make them more urban, not to city them. We're not trying to make you into cities. But what we're trying to do is to connect you into the economic engines that this country and, then frankly, this world run on. And a lot of those tactics are smart growth and they're good fiscal policy. And so it's hard. Rural America is going to have a challenge staying rural or being successful and being plugged in, not because it's not urbanizing or becoming more like cities, but because it's not plugged in metaphorically and physically to economic engines. And a lot of those are smart growth tactics that we need to be able to have that conversation and, again, build a table that includes folks from smaller places, smaller towns, and not just the urbanists who are really, you know, oftentimes are thought to be trying to city-fy up places. And it's like, our goal isn't to make you like a city. Our goal is to have you have a fiscally responsible approach that gets you to healthier outcomes for your people and a built environment that supports those people and supports those businesses that are there. And that was a conversation back on Friday, October 23rd from the Smart Growth Network between Calvin Gladney, president and CEO of Smart Growth America, national thought leader on equitable and sustainable community revitalization, and Andre Perry of the Brookings Institution and author of the new book, Know Your Price, Valuing Black Lives and Property in America's Black Cities. Hope you enjoyed that. You can learn more at smartgrowth.org. Well, stay tuned to Forward Radio coming up in just a minute. It's your community action calendar with tons of great tips for how to get involved in making sustainability a reality now this week. So stay tuned, my friends. You've got your calendars out and your pencils sharpened and you're ready to make sustainability a reality now this week. Well, the most important thing to do 
of course, is to vote. Vote early. Skip that wait, the chaos, and the crowds of Election Day. In-person early voting is available now and continues Monday through Saturday until November 2nd. If you didn't request a mail-in ballot, this is indeed the safest and most secure way to ensure your vote will be counted while maintaining appropriate physical distancing in the middle of the pandemic. There's four locations available in Jefferson County Monday through Saturday, now through the 2nd of November, and that's 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Jefferson County residents may vote at any of these locations regardless of your precinct, and you can find their drop-off boxes for absentee ballots, but you can only drop them off during those voting hours, 8.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Those four locations, again, are the Kentucky Expo Center, 937 Phillips Lane in the Fairgrounds North Wing, enter through gates 1, 2, or 4. Also, the KFC Yum Center downtown at 2nd and Main Street is open in the foyer for voting. The Kentucky Center for African American Heritage at 17th and Muhammad Ali Boulevard and Louisville Marriott East in the Commonwealth Ballroom at 1903 Embassy Square Boulevard. Information is available at GoVoteKY.com or across the river, go to Vote411.org slash Indiana and if you run into any problems at the polls or you have questions, you can call 1-866-OUR-VOTE, O-U-R-VOTE. And if you need a free ride to the polls, it's happening. Several opportunities for that. For instance, coming up this Wednesday, the 28th, the Brianna Taylor Foundation Get Out the Vote campaign will be offering free rides from the Southern Star Development at 2308 Algonquin Boulevard. In Friday the 30th, there's going to be in Park Hill. And on Tuesday the 3rd, on Election Day, they'll be giving free rides from Bates Memorial Baptist Church in Smoketown at 620 Lampton Street. And those free rides are available 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Also, uh, the Louisville Urban League is doing a great protest to power caravans to the polls every Saturday. It starts at the Urban League at 11 a.m. with food and music. And then the caravan departs at noon through Election Day. It starts at the Urban League 16th and Broadway. Now, this is UofL Sustainability Week, and there's a bunch of great stuff going on on campus. On Tuesday, October 27th, from 10 a.m. to noon on the main Humanities Quad, there'll be a pop-up free store. You can come for a free stuff swap on the quad. The student-run UofL free store continues to search for a new permanent home in the heart of campus, but as we wait for a new space, we're bringing some of our current selection out on the quad for you to explore and to take. Donations will also be accepted. Free store is a space for the ongoing free exchange of clean, durable items like clothing, shoes, electronics, small appliances, household goods, bath and beauty supplies, books, school and art supplies, non-perishable foods, and more. Donations can be made anytime in the red bins at the base of the driveway that's just east of United's Tower off of Cardinal Boulevard. So come on out this Tuesday, the 27th on the Humanities Squad, 10 a.m. to noon. And then in the same location, Wednesday, the 28th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on the Humanities Squad, it'll be UofL's 13th annual campus sustainability day fair you can join us for a celebration of all things sustainable at uofl and in the community learn what campus and community groups are doing to create a sustainable revolution sign up to get involved take the cards go green pledge and earn an ethically sourced reusable mug you can learn all about transportation alternatives and get a secure u-lock for your bike from the student government association and get hands-on personalized guidance and how to use uofl's bike fix-it stations so bring your bike for a free tune-up. 
You can shop and donate clothing, housewares, and all kinds of stuff, and another free pop-up UofL free store. And UofL Environmental Health and Safety will be collecting all kinds of lamps and batteries for recycling, any kind of alkaline, button cell, lithium, NICAD, nickel metal hydride, lead acid, carbon zinc, and mercury batteries will all be collected for recycling. And Shreddit will offer free shredding and recycling of documents, videotapes, and commuter diskettes from their truck in the circle in front of the College of Business, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Wednesday, October 28th. You can get more information at louisville.edu slash sustainability. Also coming up on Wednesday the 28th, it's a continuation of Post Landfill Action Network's monthly movement movie nights. This fall plan is hosting free monthly movie nights. Each month they will live stream for you a different documentary highlighting certain areas of environmental and social injustice. Afterwards there'll be a discussion led by a planned staff member and all of you. So coming up this Wednesday the 28th at 6pm, the film will be Plastic Wars. Less than 10% of plastics produced have been recycled. The remaining 90% ends up in landfills, incinerators, or worse of all, as pollution in our environment. The plastic industry has faced serious scrutiny and now wants us to believe that they are working to fix the problem. But what are they really doing? Well, you can learn more this Wednesday the 28th at 6 p.m. You can find the links to register for each movie at facebook.com slash Phil, and you can also follow at Post Landfill on Instagram for more information. We've also got it up on our UofL Sustainability Events page because UofL is a proud member of the Post Landfill Action Network, and so this event is part of our Sustainability Week, so you can go to louisville.edu/sustainability to learn more about it as well. Coming up on Thursday at 3 p.m. and every Thursday through November 19th, the No Waste Louisville webinar series continues. Louisville Metro's Waste Management District continues this virtual seminar series to educate residents on recycling, food waste reduction, reusing, and repurposing products. Webinars are offered every Friday at 3 p.m. through the 19th of November, and you can register and learn more at nowaste.org slash webinars. And come Coming up this Thursday at 3 p.m., October 29th, it's Love Them and Leave Them. Learn about how handling yard waste at home leads to a healthier lawn and cleaner air. Again, more information at nowastelouisville.org slash webinars. Also on Thursday the 29th at 6 p.m. online, it'll be Bernheim's annual State of the Forest presentation. You can catch up with Bernheim staff, hear updates on Bernheim's conservation research, learn about new innovative projects at Bernheim, get an update on the Save Bernheim campaign, and see what Bernheim is doing for the planet for you. Registration for State of the Forest is required but there's no cost for the event we miss being social with you and to help reconnect bernheim staff will remain on the zoom after the presentation from 7 to 7 15 so we can enjoy a beverage together bernheim will send you a special cocktail and mocktail recipe for your pleasure after you complete your registration at bernheim.org that's b-e-r-n-h-e-i-m.org 
Also on Thursday, October 29th, 7.30 to 10 p.m. at the Garden of Goodness, located in Old Louisville at 7th and Oak. It'll be a Louisville Community Grocery Autumn Garden Mixer. Join us for an in-real-life celebration of fall bounty and community with local musicians, artists, leaders in food justice and politics, as well as food producers, owners, volunteers, and board members. Bring guests who are interested in joining the movement, but this event is open to all and information on ownership of the co-op will be shared at the event. It's Thursday, the 29th, 7.30 to 10 p.m. at the Garden of Goodness at 7th and Oak. Come learn about the Louisville Community Grocery and celebrate with this autumn garden mixer. More is at facebook.com slash Louisville Community Grocery. Friday, October 30th at noon, UofL will be hosting an EcoReps workshop it's a conversation with our Josh Smith Sustainability Awardee for 2020, Shane Tedder, University of Kentucky's Sustainability Officer. This will be virtual and in-person for up to 10 attendees at Ekstrom Library in room W210. You can join us for our monthly EcoReps workshop that always features locals making a difference in sustainability. And this month, we'll be in conversation with a non-affiliated community member who has made significant contributions to UofL's sustainability initiatives. This year's award goes to Shane Tedder, who has served since 2009 as the University of Kentucky's first campus sustainability officer and now also serves as the assistant director of the Tracy Farmer Institute for Sustainability and the Environment. Throughout his time at UK, Shane has always been willing to set aside conventional UK UofL rivalry in favor of a supportive and collaborative relationship. The events of 2020 have given all of us a chance to pause, reflect, and develop our resolve to do and be better for UK sustainability this has involved a critical evaluation of how social justice is represented in their programs and supported by their resources and initiatives. UK is shifting its understanding of the metaphor of the triple bottom line, typically thought of as people, prosperity, and the planet, to one where social justice must be the foundation on which we build programs and balance the economy with the environment. Actively acknowledging, condemning, and dismantling unjust systems and redressing the harm they have caused has to come first in Shane's work. So come on out or either online or in person in Ekstrom Library Room W210 this Friday the 30th at noon to learn more about what U University of Kentucky is doing with respect to sustainability and social justice. And finally, on Saturday, October 31st, 8 a.m. to noon in the California neighborhood, Louisville Grows will be having their second fall tree planting. They'll be planting 60 trees in the California neighborhood. You can learn more and register for this uh, safe, uh, pandemic-friendly, socially distanced event at signupgenius.com. Just search for the organizer volunteer at louisvillegrows.org to learn more and to register for Saturday's tree planting, 8 a.m. to noon in the California neighborhood. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're doing well and surviving the pandemic as best you can. Stay safe, everybody. Stay sane and stay six feet apart and masked up. Mm -hmm.